Good morning, church. Wonderful to be with you. What a great day. Able to have the kids help lead us in worship. Experience two baptisms today. So powerful. And of course, happy Mother's Day. I want to say happy Mother's Day to all of you to whom that incredibly honored title applies. Uh, We appreciate how you, throughout your life, have modeled what it looks like to be the heart of God, giving life for the sake of other people. We do celebrate that today. I I also always think on this day, also on Father's Day, the same kind of thing. Um, We celebrate this. It's a wonderful time. At the same time, there are some today for whom this is a difficult day. It may be difficult for different reasons for some. Uh, the person who had that title of mother biologically in your life might not have lived up to God's intent for it. And so I want you to know we think about you on a day like this. And there are others that might have had incredible mothers. And they're not here today. And we grieve with you today. I just want you to know there is space and room on this day. We come to the God who ultimately shows us what a loving parent ought to look like. Yes, God, our Father, is also the one who loves us maternally uh, as a mother should. And, And so all of those places are appropriate for us where we come in our heart. So we honor you today, but also we welcome you, even if this is a difficult day for you. And it is fitting on this day that we are looking at story of a woman who actually will end up becoming a pretty famous mother. We're looking at the book of Ruth and exploring God's vision of what relationships look like when he's at the center of it. What kind of relationships are ones that we can have that fulfill us, that lift us up, but also carry on an impact for generations to come. So we started that last week and we saw these characters, two of the main three Uh, that we will see in the story, a woman named Naomi, and how that story starts in darkness, really. It's a triple tragedy for her. She begins in famine and poverty, then she loses her husband, and then ultimately loses her children as well. But we saw one act of friendship, one powerful relationship from her daughter-in-law, Ruth. Her over-the-top, going beyond commitment to her mother-in-law, brought rays of hope right in the middle of the darkness, that not only began turning the story towards redemption for her, but also it's like that little pebble in the pond that, that goes back to begin heal relationships that were there in the past, but impact future generations as well. That's what we saw last week, but we're going to move ahead today. I call it God's chemistry lab. And we'll see what it looks like for God's spiritual chemistry to happen in some relationships here. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to read. In the book of Ruth, chapter 2, we'll look at most of the chapter. Won't read all of it, but read a good chunk of it here. This is the word of the Lord from the book of Ruth. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields and pick up leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, Go ahead, my daughter. And she went out and entered a field and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. And Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from the morning until now, except for just a short rest in the shelter. 
So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I've told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground and she asked him, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told about all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband and how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I don't have the standing of one of your servants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. She sat down with the harvesters. He offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered and it amounted to about an ephah, gallons of wheat. And she carried it back to town and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. And Ruth also brought out and gave to her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I suspect most of you, maybe not all, but most of you have had some exposure one way or another to the science of chemistry. Some of you have been forced to do it. Some of you probably have words in your head that you will flush out in a couple of weeks, but it's in there now. Some of you are inflicting that pain on some of our students as you teach it. But I want you to think about for a moment, if you have had some version of chemistry in some way, what did you learn there? I know for me, my first exposure to chemistry we had in middle school in Mr. Kennedy's science class. And I will be honest with you, I didn't learn a lot about chemistry. <laughs> didn't learn a lot about science. Learned a lot about life, but I didn't learn about chemistry, science, the kind of things I was supposed to learn about. Here's how it happened, I think there was something kind of set up from the beginning that this wasn't going to work because Mr. Kennedy was odd and irritable. <laughs> like, he's always in a bad mood. He's odd and irritable, and I was immature and irritating. <laughs> so the chemistry wasn't working out from the very beginning. And I'll give you an example of the kind of things that we would do from time to time. There was one day we walked up to his desk, and you picture kind of that science class desk, you know, the uh, the sink is there and all the stuff cluttered on it. We walked up to Mr. Kennedy, me and two of my friends, and we said, Mr. Kennedy, we, we want to show you a science experiment. Now, he should have known better. I'm just being honest. He should have known better. But he said, okay. And so we pulled out this pen, and I, I haven't seen them. I kind of tried to find a picture on the internet. I can't find it. It was an old, just simple, cheap pen, but on the top of it, on the, on the back, was a little metal ball. It, it looked like a little B, silver BB. And so we said, we want to show you a science experiment. And so we took it and we rubbed the pen, the little metal ball, really hard on the paper and stuck it on his hand. <laughs> of course, he jumps back, it burned him, and he's looking at us with this shock. And then he says, principal's office. <laughs> Three of us just marched down there. We had been there before. We would be there again. 
And, and I guess that experience and ones like it is behind the moment I remember of all things. I don't know why this one sticks, but of all things, I remember this moment most in my middle school chemistry class. We were all waiting outside of his door to go in for the next period, and, and Mr. Kennedy was notorious. One of the things that was odd and irritating about him is he would always keep his students like five or ten minutes late. So insert preacher joke here now. Um, but he would always keep everybody late, and so we're always you know, waiting to get into the room uh, in the next period. And, and so some kid comes by, knocks on the door, and runs. Mr. Kennedy opens the door, he looks out, sees me, does not say a word, he just pointed. <laughs> I'd seen that gesture before, and I go to the principal's office. I, I didn't learn anything about chemistry there, but I learned something about life, something about relationships. I would, in my young mind, I want to say I wanted to cry out of the injustice of that moment, but the reality is I had paved the way for that moment in the choices I had made in our relationship before. And when we come to this story, God invites us to look at kind of a chemistry experiment. He wants to show us a little bit about chemistry here, but it's not about science. It is about relationships. And I think what he's doing, the image I want us to think about is he's prepared a laboratory to show us something about the spiritual chemistry of relationships when he's at the center of it. And so as you get into the story, one of the things I want to say, by the way, let me warn you, with a chapter like this and a book like this, we can't look at everything. I just want to take one angle and focus on that. But when I come to this, I'm reminded that sometimes we want to sit around and in our relationships and when it comes to life... We want to ask God, what are you doing right now? How are you acting directly and visibly in our lives? We love those moments when the Damascus Road experience and we see the light. We love moments when the bush is on fire and we know God is showing up. But what I notice in this story is that more often than not, God works behind the scenes. God works very quietly and subtly. In fact, when you think about this, in the book of Ruth, there's only two times in the entire book that the narrator says God directly acts visibly in the moment. It's the very beginning of the book and the very end of the book. More often than not, what you find is God subtly working, quietly working, indirectly working behind the scenes. A couple different ways that you see it in this story. <clears throat> First of all, look at verse 3. It says, as it turned out, it just so happened, lo and behold, Ruth goes out to glean, and she finds herself in the field of Boaz, one of her family relatives. It just so happens. How many times, we won't spend a lot of time on this, but we know this to be true. How many times have you seen something that coincidentally happens, only to look back to find the movement and the direction of the hand of God working behind the scenes, subtly in the story? In between the first and the last chapter, this is the way God often shows up. He's subtle, and he's indirect. But sometimes the most important way that God shows up indirectly in behind the scenes in the story is in terms of what he's already done. I want you to think about it this way. God already has provided direction for our relationships today, years ago, by speaking to us in his revelation in Scripture. 
And I know when I say that, it is so less exciting than God woke me up last night with a dream and the bush was on fire moment. So those things are cool and those are powerful. But understand, God has given us principles and wisdom in his revelation in Scripture for our lives today. And a way of thinking about that, it's almost as if when God has acted in the past, he's prepared the laboratory for the chemistry experiment that he's going to show us. He's prepared the room for something he wants us to experience today, but he's already set things up for us by what he revealed in the past. So I want you to think about this. There is a relationship that begins here in this chapter. We will see it grow through the rest of the book. But a relationship between Ruth and Boaz starts with a centuries-old, of all things, you ready for this? Farming law. What a crazy thing. But God speaks to his people, and sometimes he gives, you know, Holy Spirit, like have communion, cross moments, Exodus splitting the Red Sea moment. Sometimes he gives us common everyday stuff like farming laws in the Old Testament. Let me give you a picture of what's behind this story. It's back in Deuteronomy chapter 24. It says in verse 19, when you're harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, don't go back and get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. I told you, watch for repetition in Scripture. So that the Lord your God may bless you in the work of your hands. When you beat the olives from your trees, don't go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for what? The foreigner, and the fatherless, and the widow. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. God says, I want you to take care of the people like you had to be taken care of before. Centuries before this moment, God gave them a boring law about farming. And what God had spoken in the past, it was like preparing the laboratory for the chemistry experiment that's going to happen in this relationship as it grows. And all they do in the moment is do what we ought to do. Here's a way to think about it. If you want to start improving your relationships right now or deepening your relationships, here's a simple thing to do. Obey what God already said. Instead of waiting for the light to come and hit me like, God, what do you want in my relationship right now? What do you want for my future? Here, think about this. Start by obeying what God already said. There's wisdom for our relationship right now in the moment that God has prepared sometimes years in advance of the moment you might experience. And that's what he does with Ruth and Boaz. Here's a way to think about it. If you're like me, sometimes we grow up in the settings in church and I hear the word obey. I'm just being honest with you and I might have shared this in my class before too. The word obey can be traumatic for me, honestly. When I was growing up, the word obey was like a word that, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm held over the pit of hell and if I mess up, if I break the rules, God's throwing me in the pit of hell. I'm always trying to you know, avoid breaking the rules. Obedience was this oppressive thing. But I see stories like this here and stories of the New Testament also that remind me obedience is not intended to be a little check mark to make God happy with you. He couldn't be more delighted with you. He gave you his son. What about this? Here's a couple different images. What if obedience was not something I do to make God happy with me? What if obedience is like a key that opens a door that God has prepared for us to experience? Just think about that. What if... What if obedience is like opening the door to the laboratory and God has things prepared for us to experience that moment? We just won't see it until we get in position 
to experience it. Obedience is the key that opens the door to an experience God already had planned for you, a purpose God already had planned, but I can't see it until I obey. Or another image, well, I promise I'll share this one again. I love this picture because it plays off of the language of the Holy Spirit, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. The same word for spirit is also the word for wind or breath. So what if we think about this way? Our lives are like boats sitting on the water, and what obedience is, is putting up the sail so that we might catch the wind and the breath of God to move us in the moment. Obedience is not an oppressive thing. It is an invitation to be in position to experience what God already has planned for us. And that's what happens here with Ruth and Boaz. They just obey. Ruth just starts. She doesn't wait. She just says, okay, I, I've heard about this God who says, go care for the people in your life. I'm going to go out and work. She works all day long. Boaz says, I'm going to, I'm going to obey. I'm just going to follow the the law that God wrote centuries ago about leaving stuff on the ground. And that raises the sail. It opens the door for the chemistry that's going to happen in the rest of the book. So what if we think about it this way? If you want stronger relationships in your life, why don't you start by just asking God, what is it that you've already told me about relationships that I can start applying today? That I'm serving other people, maybe forgiving other people. What, what do I need to be putting into my life today? If you want to have more meaningful work relationships in your life, what if we stop trying to fix other people and just say, God, what, what do you want me to do with myself today? How, how do I live out what you've already taught me today? If you want to deepen your relationship in your marriage and in your dating relationships, why don't we just start by saying, God, what did you already tell us about what relationship is supposed to look like? It's supposed to look like Father, Son, and Holy Spirit giving for the sake of the other. It's supposed to look like Jesus, the bride in his church. What if we start just by doing that? Or if you want to get married one day, right? What if we just start by saying, God, can, can you help me start living out right now the vision of what it's supposed to look like to be a godly man or woman in a relationship and stop just listening to whatever I read on the internet or whatever I see on TV? God, why don't we start with what he already gave us? Because God has already spoken. He's already acted. We're waiting for the lightning bolt to come from heaven. He's already given us something from heaven that says, I might use this to open the door to an experience you didn't even know was possible. Now, watch how this works in this particular story. There's a chemistry that happens here. I call it a spiritual law of attraction, right? Here's a way to think about that. We know this in the physical world. In the physical world, we have things like this. We've got magnets, right, that attract to each other, right? It, we have magnets that on an atomic level kind of want to come together. Or one of my chemistry teachers said one time, you could literally taste what goes on with the natural laws of attraction. You can taste it in what you put on your food sometimes, salt, right? This is what chemists will call an ionic bond. I know I'm speaking outside of my depth here, but some of you can help me on this. Check me on this, right? Ionic bond. This is when two things come together, kind of almost opposites, right? So it's different charges come together. That's what makes salt. But there are other ones. It's called a covalent bond that kind of fits a little bit more where we're going in this story. Water that we drink every day comes from sharing together, like electrons from different atoms. They come together, and it makes something that didn't exist before. And we see this in the natural world, but if you look closely at the story, you will notice a spiritual power that's at work in that same way. 
Here's a way to think about it. What is it in the story that initially attracts Boaz to Ruth? There's nothing in this text, in this chapter, that indicates that it is her physical beauty that draws him to her. That may be involved in it, but that's not what the text calls out. That's not what he speaks out here. By the way, if you're like me and you think sometimes, oh, hold on, well, that's beneath the Bible. It's not going to talk about physical attractiveness. It's going to go deep. But hold on, the Bible is not above talking about physical beauty. It's not above describing people in that way. Here's the way the Bible chooses to introduce David when he comes on the scene. He is ruddy with beautiful eyes and handsome. (laughs) The Bible said that. Or Rachel, Jacob's wife, is described when he meets her as graceful and beautiful. Or the Song of Songs might even make you blush in its over-the-top description of young marital love and the passion and the beauty physically that they have for each other. The Bible is not above talking about physical descriptions of attractiveness when the situation calls for it. But here there's something different going on. In verses 10 and 11, it says that Boaz is drawn not to what she looked like, but what she did. He said, I heard the reputation of what you've done for your family. I knew how you went over the top and you stuck with somebody. You left your mother. You left your homeland. You came to people you don't even know. In other words, to put it simply, Boaz was not drawn to her beauty. He was drawn to her character. And there's a word for this. We mentioned it last time. I want to lean into it a little more today. The biblical word is hesed. The Hebrew word for this. And you know this with translations sometimes, in any language, sometimes you come across a word that you literally cannot translate with one word in any other language. Hesed is like that. Uh, in your Bibles, it's probably called steadfast love or mercy or enduring mercy or whatever. It, it's, it's covenant love. It is God's covenant love that he's had toward Israel. It's this over-the-top depiction that we saw last week in Ruth. And that's what Boaz is attracted to. Not to her physical beauty first, but to the hesed he sees in her life. And he uses that word to describe it. She goes over the top and beyond all expectation in sticking with Naomi when it had no advantage to herself. By the way, Boaz is described here as having hesed as well. He also goes over the top and beyond the law's expectations. What did God's God's rule say to do for the poor? Well, just don't, you know, don't pick everything up if you drop it down on the ground, right? It's, you know, God said, basically, don't do what your grandparents said. Clean your plate. Just leave some stuff there. What does Boaz do? He goes beyond that. He says, in addition to that, I'm going to pull some stuff out and throw it on the ground. (laughs) In addition to that, I'm going to ask you to go and stay with my servant girl so you can be protected there. In addition to that, he says, come sit down at my table. And he hosts her at a meal an honor that was reserved for people with the highest dignity. He goes out of his way to show Hesed love to her. By the way, Ruth and Boaz didn't make this up because one of the most common words to describe the character of God in the Old Testament is Hesed. The one who goes above and beyond, out of his way to stick with Israel when nobody else would have stuck with this nation. The God who goes above and beyond Anything that's expected by giving the life of his own son so that we might have life. Here's the picture that you get. The attraction that happens comes from her character, not just her beauty. And why is that important for us? 
Because what I see happening here is a spiritual law at work. Character attracts character. Please don't miss this. This is enormous. If you want a bottom line from Scripture, but we also have seen it in everyday life, principle for human relationships, know this. Character attracts character. Integrity draws integrity. You might have heard it said this way before. Hurt people hurt people. Broken people attract broken people. But it's also true the other way around. Healthy people draw in other healthy people. And the Hesed of Ruth draws out the Hesed in Boaz, which illuminates the Hesed of God. Do you see that? She is practicing the nature of the character that the God that she is just getting to know, and it spills out to the lives of the people around you. So here's the principle for any relationship you might have. If you want to have good relationships in your life, start by practicing that character in your own life first. Look around and see who is coming in your orbit. Because there is a law of spiritual attraction that says character attracts character. Of the way Tommy Nelson put this one time, he was a preacher in Dallas for years. But he said, look, if you're, if you're looking for somebody to date, I love this. He said, just start running towards God. Don't start looking for somebody else. Start running towards God. Run for a while and then look next to you and see who's running with you. And just say, hey, would you like to run together? <laughs> it's a great picture. But this isn't true just for dating and marriage relationship. This is true for any relationship in human life. There is a gravitational pull towards character. So the best thing we can do in our relationships is start practicing those character traits in our own life. Here's a great thought. If you want to start developing deeper friends, here's a great place to start. Don't go look for them. Start being a person who practices this over-the-top friendship in your own life and see who comes in your sphere of influence. If you want to have better work relationships in your work, stop going around and criticizing and trying to fix everybody. Fix yourself. Start being the best employee or employer you can be and see what kind of atmosphere gathers around you. If you want to deepen your marriage, here's the thought. Don't go give a list to your wife or your husband. <laughs> Start being a better spouse yourself. Not just by trying. The power of the Spirit of God. Grow deeper in your own life in being a spouse. And watch what it does with the person in your life. And if you want to marry somebody someday, start being the kind of person you want to be with one day. And look who ends up around you. It is a powerful law of spiritual attraction. And hear this, this isn't about us just trying hard and doing things. What you see from the beginning is the people that get closer and closer to the Hesed of God spill that out in the lives around them and then people gather around. I end with this image for you. I, uh, I've made a lot of really bad choices in my life. But by the grace of God, I've also made some good ones. One of the best choices I ever made in my life was to marry a woman of character. And I, I will tell you, I, I think she's stunning today. I thought she's stunning when I met her. But my choice when we got married was to marry a woman of character. And I, was a, I was a college minister, as you know, for years. And I would have students ask all the time, one way or another, how, how do you know how to choose the person to marry. How, how do you know that? 
And I'll be the first one to say, look, I'm not going to give you marriage or relationship advice. I won't give you that. But I will tell you a story that I tell everywhere I go, and I thought it's pretty fitting here. So I'm doing a series on relationships and on friendship on Mother's Day. I want to share with you something I've learned from my best friend, from the best relationship I've ever had, one of the models of motherhood that I get to see every day from my wife. So this is a story I, I share with my students. I say, here's my advice, so to speak, is just pay attention, watch, and pay attention to pools and brushes. <laughs> what do I mean, mean, mean by that? Again, I, my wife's studying. She's beautiful. I love her. She's unbelievable to me. But I remember the day when I said, this is, I'm all in, and this is the woman I want to marry. By the way, I'm slow and stupid, okay? So we dated on and off for five years because I'm dumb and because I was scared of commitment, just being honest. I remember the day, I'm all in. And again, in my heart, the deepest reason I was all in is because I saw in this woman the character I want to see passed on from generation to generation and the children come after. By the way, some of us need to marry up because <laughs> I got to bias the gene pool coming after. I married for character. But here's a story. <laughs> a story I told my students all the time and pass on to you. We had just been married. I mean, just a matter of weeks, I think it was. Just moved to a new town. And before I started law school and she started uh, being a teacher for the first year, we did a bunch of different odd jobs just to you know, pay the bills over the summer. And she started working for a couple of months at a pool, a little pool in our apartment complex. You know how it is, a little neighborhood pool. And there were two other ladies that worked in this job as well, and they were rotated. And they had a simple job, okay? It was just unlock it in the morning, lock it back at night before the kind of key cards and all that stuff. Um, and you just kind of checked IDs to make sure people weren't sneaking in. The last responsibility they had before they left at night was to get a little brush like that, and the owners wanted them to go and scrub the entire side of the pool. We found out pretty quickly when Molly started working there that no one ever did that. <laughs> no one ever scrubbed the sky of the pool, and no one seemed to care. It's almost as if the owner said, look, we'll clean it at the beginning, we'll clean it at the end, nobody cares. Of all the people that worked in that job, you know how many people ever scrubbed the side of the pool? Zero. Nobody did it. I don't know if it seems like a small thing, but let me tell you this. Do you know what my wife would do every night before she went home? She got out the cleanser, she got that brush, and she scrubbed the side of the pool when nobody was looking and when no one cared. That is character. And I told my students, you marry that. Marry a pool scrubber. <laughs> and you will never regret it a day in your life. Now, this isn't about marriage only. This is about any relationship. And I want to say, if you want joy in your relationships that will impact for generations to come, get around some pool scrubbers. <laughs> get around some people that have character when no one else is looking. But much more important than that, I think the story here, God is telling us, don't just look for those people. Be that person yourself. Be the one who will scrub the pool when no one looks. Be the one who pulls out a little extra grain and drops it on the ground. Be that one who gives an all-in commitment to someone when it makes no sense to anybody else. Be that kind of person. And see what God gathers around you by the powerful spiritual chemistry of his hesed in people's lives. It literally will transform the world.
Father God, we give you praise for modeling that for us for all of eternity. The power we cannot even fathom in the love of you as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that you then invite us to come and orbit around you. Father, we ask that you so infuse your character in us that as imperfect and broken as we are, Father, that power will impact the lives, not just now, but for generations to come. And we pray this for the glory of your name.